Hello and welcome to the Asian Peace Talks. This is a podcast series launched by the Asian Peace Program of the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. The goal of the Asian Peace Program is a noble one, to try to preserve and strengthen peace in Asia. With our limited resources, we have to take a modest approach. Nonetheless, just as a small acupuncture needle can make a big difference, we hope that our monthly policy essays and this podcast series will make a big difference and strengthen the peace regimes in Asia. I'm Kishore Mabubani, the host of the Asian Peace Talks. For the seventh episode of this podcast series, we are delighted to interview Sarang Shidor, uh, Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. Prior to his current role at the Quincy Institute, Sarang was a senior research scholar at the University of Texas at Austin. His areas of research and analysis are geopolitical risks, grand strategy, and energy climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. Sarang has collaborated and published with multiple organizations, including our Asian Peace Program, Brookings Institution, Center for Strategic and International Studies, Council on Foreign Relations, among others. Sarang, thank you very much for participating in this podcast discussion. For this interview, I will basically ask questions from the Southeast Asian perspective. Because Southeast Asians want to have a good understanding uh, of what's going on with, with both China and the United States. And indeed, we want to have good relations with both. And we are therefore troubled by this deteriorating bilateral relationships between China and the U.S. Uh, since the Trump administration launched a geopolitical contest with China. My first question, therefore, to you is a rather basic one. How would you explain to the Southeast Asian audience listening to this podcast, what exactly is the United States trying to achieve by launching this contest with China? Thank you, Kishore, very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to to be here in conversation with you about what is a very important topic, uh, perhaps the most important topic in geopolitics today which is the U.S.-China dynamic and its wider implications in Asia. Now, the question you asked me is a very good one. I think if we had a very clear answer to it, it would be a bit easier to solve the problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the, the challenge I have sometimes is to precisely understand the objectives of the United States and particularly the current administration, because we are talking now at this moment, in terms of how they view China, what they want from China. Now, you can, of course, look at the statements, read the articles, watch the interviews of key and senior figures in the administration, and some things can be deduced. One of them, clearly, is that the United States believes that China is a major threat to it. Now, by Saying this, I think most of these officials will concede, if asked, that China is not likely to march across Alaska or Washington State or Kansas <laughs> with troops and occupy it. Yeah. I don't think that is what uh, certainly the American people are afraid of and presumably the politicians. I think the question of Chinese uh, dominance over the United States 
comes from partly an unspoken fear of China dominating economics and technology such that the United States' leadership in it that's assumed to be present for decades and sort of assumed to be forever present in the future. There is an implicit sense that the U.S. is is born to lead. Uh, for the first time, the U.S. is confronting a peer competitor, China, with a population four times its own. And the fear is that the U.S. will be overwhelmed by it. It's very much seen as a, as a zero-sum kind of a framing. The second part comes from a, this you will get more from the establishment elites and national security analysts, is the fact that China could overwhelm U.S. allies in Asia because the United States, of course, has a system of alliances and partnerships in Asia. Two of them, Japan and the Philippines, have territorial disputes with China. So there is a sense that the United States should stand up for its allies. And increasingly these days, Taiwan is being discussed like an ally, although that was not the understanding reached in the 70s and 80s precisely. We can come back to that in a minute. So the idea is that the U.S. should do more, should provide more deterrence in a way that doesn't lead to war, will say administration officials, uh, so that allies are defended, they feel secure, they're protected and so forth. And the third part, especially present in the current administration, comes from those who take a normative view of the world, who see the world as a place that is constantly perfecting itself in a storyline similar to the United States, which is moving from the promise of democracy in 1776 to its perfection over time. Civil rights movements and other movements and so forth, the broadening of this sphere of rights to every American citizen is then translated into the world as a mission, and again, a very American thing, a mission that the entire world should be democratic. Now, of course, after the Iraq war and the failures in the Middle East, nobody's really talking of making China a democracy. I think that that is not the goal. In fact, there's quite a different sort of a goal being articulated recently, which is defending the United States and its allies from what is seen as a threat Uh, The assumption is that China and Russia are hell-bent on undermining and ultimately ending the democratic system of the Western powers for reasons that have not clearly been explained as to why they would do that exactly. So the idea is to make the world safe for democracy, for American democracy, we must defend it. And uh, in a sense, we have to be assertive, including through hard security means, to defend the American system that includes parts of Asia, or most a lot of Asia, in fact. Well, I must say you've done a brilliant job in trying to explain uh, what is in American minds when they look at uh, China. You've explained how they see the rise of China as a threat to American primacy. You've described how China's rise is seen as a threat to American allies. And finally, uh, you also indicated how the rise of China is seen as a threat to American democracy. So these are the sort of the three dimensions, in a sense, in the American mind uh, as they view China. And the interesting thing about the Biden administration is that when he came into office, uh, we do know it altered a lot of the policies of the Trump administration. But in private, some people in the Biden administration actually said to me and said, okay, sure, one thing that Trump got right was China. And so when Trump began beating up on China, they said, 
great, that's what we will do too. But they also claimed that we'll be smarter than Trump. We won't do it alone. We'll rally the allies of uh, the United States. And guess what? China is going to deal with a united front of the allies of the United States. Now, this it has now come to almost, what, 18, 19, 20 months since the Biden administration uh, has been in office. Do you think that they have succeeded in getting the allies of uh, United States to join in a policy of isolating China? Or have they actually come to the realization, and we can discuss this also later, that, that when it comes to countries like the 10 uh, ASEAN countries, which are also friendly to United States, they have said, excuse me, we want to be friends with the United States, but we also want to be friends with China. So has the Biden administration come to realize that the situation is not so simple, black and white in the way they put it, but that U.S. has got to learn to become more sophisticated? Is that realization dawning in Washington, D.C.? One hopes so, Kishore. One hopes so. I'm not convinced it is quite there yet. If you're looking at it from a Washington perspective of people uh, such as some members of the Biden team, indeed, practically all of them, who have been in D.C. forever, who live in a sort of a, um, um, sometimes an echo, <laughs> an echo chamber, uh, where U.S. primacy is taken for granted. Uh, they have grown up in its shadow. They have interpreted it as uh, being a good thing for the world, not just for the United States. There's a very much an altruistic understanding. The U.S. dominance of the world is good for the world. Uh, this is a kind of a, a lens through which uh, the socialization has been quite deep. When they look at Asia and see what has happened in the last two years, let's say, or more, you're quite right. They they like what Trump did, elements of what he did. They just think that he should have done them. First, he shouldn't have beaten up on allies on things like uh, more defense spending or in, on trade fights, which they don't think should be waged very much with allies, much more with adversaries. That's one. Second, they want to create a much more of a integrated system, security order in Asia that ties together the various allies and partners in a military-to-military sense. So the classic hub-and-spoke system of U.S. alliances in Asia, where the United States had bilateral alliances with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia, with the Philippines, with Thailand... Over time, this is not just a Biden thing. It's been going on for some years. The idea is to try and stitch together the spokes in a way that starts not, it's not going to be a NATO, but starts looking something in between just a hub and spoke systems at one end of the spectrum and NATO at the other end of the spectrum. And the idea is to move forward in that process so if the, if you if the biden team is let's say scoring honestly their their achievements in this they will be happy from their perspective with AUKUS, which brought australia united states indeed an extra regional power an ally the united kingdom into asia in a very direct military sense to confront china because what AUKUS is going to do is very arguably an offensive intent on china it's not about defending australia's shores it's about taking the fight deep out of Australia into the waters of the South China Sea and beyond. So they would be happy with AUKUS in spite of all the serious objections raised to it, including some of them in my own writing and our own events at the Quincy Institute. 
but they will not probably agree. The other thing they probably will say is that the Quad, which is a four-nation grouping including the United States, Australia, Japan, and India, which, by the way, India has become a much closer security partner in the last seven, eight, nine years, they would say the Quad has moved forward with the leaders' summit and all the statements and so forth. Japan is also moving forward. It has made more assertive statements on Taiwan. It is upping its defense spending. Uh, The new prime minister has been quite assertive about that. So all of these things would be viewed as wins by the Biden team. I'm not saying they're necessarily wins for peace in Asia, mind you. But there'll be wins for the Biden team in terms of its objectives. On the other hand, I think the Biden team may have realized that the one region of Asia that has not budged is your own. Mm, ASEAN. ASEAN. Mm. And I think ASEAN has, as you have, I don't need to tell you, you have written extensively (laughs) about this. You have uh, been a part of it, actually, on shaping it. And ASEAN has evolved a formula whereby non-alignment is a key to prosperity within ASEAN. It's also key to peace. And the way it's done is not non-alignment in terms of running away from the big powers, but embracing them, welcoming the United States, welcoming Europe, and welcoming Chinese investment and economic and trade uh, presence. So I don't think the Biden administration has made any significant headway on bringing ASEAN states into even the margins of the U.S. security architecture in Asia. Of course, there are exercises and there are conferences and meetings, but Southeast Asia does it with other powers too. So I think there, there is a message that hopefully they've heard. And also on India, I would also say that on India, the progress, quote unquote, that uh, Washington may have hoped for has not fully materialized. In the Quad, the signs are that India has been reluctant to move forward much more openly on in terms of China. There's also the Russia question where India has taken a very different position. That's a separate issue. So all in all, I think they would see it as a as, as a mixed record. I'm really glad you, you just described in a very careful and nuanced way how the different elements have been working or not working I mean, I would say actually AUKUS has proved overall to be a net minus because it has, for example, alienated Indonesia, which felt that Australia, by in a sense violating the non-proliferation regime that it belonged to, was actually now becoming a source of discomfort in the region, of course. But as we know, the Morrison government is gone and now we have to wait and see what the new Albanese government will do, uh, there will definitely be some differences within the Morrison and Albanese government. But, you know, at the same time, I think you also pointed out that even India, for example, doesn't want to go full hook, line and sinker and say we are all the way with you against China and certainly not all the way with you against Russia, for sure. All this shows that you've got to make very careful, subtle, sophisticated judgments, you know, on Asian countries. And I'm going to ask you a question about the two main strategic thinkers, uh, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan. You know, they are supposed to be formulating their their policies towards uh, Asia. 
I wonder whether you see whether they have come to realize that perhaps the world that they thought they were walking into in Asia is not the world that they have actually walked into. And are they thinking or preparing a, possibly a new or different approach towards Asia? I haven't seen great evidence of it yet. There are some signs in recent weeks that dialogue between the U.S. and China has stepped Increased, up. Increased, yes. Wang Yi and Blinken and Yang yes. uh, Jiechi Jiechi and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Jake, Jake Sullivan, Sullivan yeah. have had long conversations. This is not 20-minute conversations. These Five are hours. hours. <laughs> Four hours, exactly. Which is a good thing. Yes. I think this is a wonderful thing. And I think... Uh, That's uh, what creates peace, talking. Yes, yes. <laughs> talking is essential to be. Without that, there is no peace possible. Yes, yes. So I think there is some movement in that direction, which I'm very encouraged by. What it needs to be followed up with is much more. Now, in terms of the strategic thinking of the Biden team, as I said, there is this sense that China will, if not constrained, it will overwhelm the United States in many ways. In fact, President Biden made a statement in his first press conference. He said that under his watch, China will not become the world's leading country, will not become the world's wealthiest country, and will not become the world's greatest power. Now, when I read that statement, I was puzzled because what he was saying was that presumably he wants it beyond his term, that China, with four times the population, is destined to be at a GDP that's the same as the U.S. So an average Chinese person should be destined to live at one quarter the living standards of an average American. You can leave aside the ethics of it because it's international relations. It's it's about competition, one would argue, some would argue. But the question is whether it's possible, whether this is a goal that the United States should have for, for itself rather than a goal of as to where it stands, whether how American citizens do better than they did last year. Ronald Reagan said it best. He said, are you better off? Today than you were four years ago in his in his uh, uh, election campaign in 1980, it was the single most effective sentence that he asked the American people. And I think there's, there's a picture of me shaking hands with him there. Yes, indeed, <laughs> as as with many 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 other leaders, of course. Yeah, I think that's the disconnect. The disconnect between the American elite, not all of them, but many of them, and the American people that today are suffering from a very high level of inflation that are increasingly finding 18-year-old young men break into classrooms and kill little kids, that are seeing homelessness grow, that are continuing to see a healthcare crisis, are perhaps less concerned about how well Chinese live across the other side of the planet. Perhaps they're more concerned about solving their own problems in the here and now. And this is a disconnect, I think, where the foreign policy of the middle class promised by the Biden team hasn't yet been practiced or being being translated into actual uh, policies. I'm glad you, you emphasized that a foreign policy for the middle class hasn't worked. And I want to emphasize that, as you know, the United States has a lot of friends in Asia. And ASEAN actually was created as a pro-American organization Indeed. in 1967. And when ASEAN was created, it was denounced by Moscow. It was denounced by Beijing. So there still remain huge reservoirs of goodwill 
towards the United States uh, in Southeast Asia, and the Southeast Asian countries want the United States to Absolutely. do well. But precisely because we want the United States to do well, we actually believe that thanks to American education, the best way to do well is actually to open yourself up to trade. This is a lesson we learned from Washington, D.C., that you should sign free trade agreements, and you should also cut down on trade tariffs. And instead, the, the the shocking thing for many Southeast Asians is that, you know, even though Economics 101 teaches us that trade tariffs, as Janet Yellen, I think, will teach in any classroom, uh, don't really help the American people. They actually uh, harm the American people because they harm American consumers, uh, American workers, American competitiveness. And one would have thought that the at least the easiest thing that Joe Biden could have done would have been to at least at least remove the tariffs or reduce the tariffs against China. But here again, we say what nineteen twenty months have passed, and there is still no prospect of uh, any of the tariffs being lifted. So how how do you explain that after the United States has convinced us Asians that trade is good for you, United States is now doing the opposite. What's the justification they have for that? You made a lot of good points just now, Kishore. One of the things you said was how much Asian prosperity has uh, been linked to American policies. Absolutely. There is no question. The United States has been a very positive player, apart from the Vietnam War, sad episode of of the war. Outside of that, its economic and trade policies have defeated communism in this part of the world, have shown in many ways and combined with the hard work of the region, of course, And that still remains. The U.S. remains the biggest investor in ASEAN. The problem is that trade has become securitized in the United States. It has become a third rail, what's called the third rail of American politics. You touch it and you die. Both parties are very shy of signing new trade deals. The Congress has become very tough on trade deals. So I think the Biden team is actually would agree with you. Hmm. The Biden team, in private, private, they would probably agree. They would want the U.S. to come Mm. back to -hmm. some of these agreements. Come back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. For example, the CPTPP, uh, the gold standard in trade agreements in Asia. I think if they had their own vote alone, they would want in. But the politics gets in the way. Now, how do you overcome a politics that is, uh, let's say, not aligned with the national interest? You do that through leadership. You need a strong leader and a functioning political system to overcome populist strains that sort of push anxiety uh, in in the mix. And uh, leadership is about pushing back against that anxiety and giving hope to the people. America has produced many such presidents. One hopes that the current president and the future ones are able to find that magic formula to achieve uh, that sort of leadership. I would also say that there are some attempts being made by the U.S. outside of trade agreements. The Indo-Pacific economic framework is a sign that the U.S. at least has recognized that it needs to be back in the game. The problem is, of course, we don't know enough about it yet. And there's no there's no trade dimension to it at all, also, unfortunately. a big weakness. Which is the most important thing. You know, you mentioned earlier leadership, and as you know, one somebody who brought out a new book on leadership is <laughs> Henry Kissinger. And I must say that he's uh, at the age of 99, 
still speaking out very boldly. And I must say that he his most recent statement on China uh, was uh, among the strongest ones, saying that he's warned the Biden administration from pursuing uh, what he calls, quote, endless confrontation, unquote, with China, and saying that this could lead to a catastrophic global war. I, I wonder, you know, can't the Biden administration take some political cover from Henry Kissinger and say, actually, you know, we would really like to, you know, stand up to China. But guess what? You know, this wise man, Henry Kissinger, said, OK, we've got other things to do. Is there any chance at all that Henry Kissinger can have any influence, real influence, in terms of pushing the Biden administration towards the center in terms of his policy towards China? You know, Henry Kissinger is a very intelligent man. And at 99, continues not just to speak, but also write books. He yeah. just he just wrote his latest one. So, amazing. I mean, amazing. Yeah, one can learn a lot from him. He's had a controversial past, but at his current age, he has nothing to lose and nothing to prove. I think he should be listened to very carefully. I do sometimes see signs, for example, in Jake Sullivan's recent speech that he made about China policy, the elements that make sense. For example, the argument that there should be guardrails to the competition, that there should be much more robust confidence uh, building measures or CBMs, uh, that there should be dialogue between the militaries. This is where the U.S. has actually pressed China on having those dialogues and China has resisted. So this is where China can, can do more. But again, you know, all of these positives that one sees in the administration come with Another side, which is what I would consider negatives, like making these gaffes on Taiwan. We've had at least three of them so far. You know, just generally the policy on Taiwan, policy on economics. You know, we live in an age where wise people have their influence, but the politics of populism, the politics driven often by social media, political polarization... Very narrow election defeats or losses, constituencies where elections go one way or the other through small attack ads or issues. Make politicians anxious. To take risky steps is the leader may want it, but there'll be some consultant telling them, Mr. President or Mr. XYZ, you might lose uh, election there or here. There's a congressional election coming up, for example, in the United States. So we, I think we live in an age where wise people have less of a way to convince uh, or let's say translate their advice into policy because of the uh, the dangers of electoral politics and since we mentioned electoral politics of course one of the most important politicians in the United States of America is the uh, speaker of the house Nancy Pelosi yes and i'm glad you mentioned taiwan because one reason why we have succeeded in keeping peace in taiwan for over 50 years since uh, Richard Nixon's path-breaking visit to uh, China in 1972 was a kind of an implicit understanding by both sides, you know, that the United States understood very well that China claimed Taiwan. And, of course, at that point, the government in Taiwan also claimed all of China. Both governments agreed that they were one China and not two Chinas. What the bedrock, of uh, American policy towards China was captured in one one short phrase called the One China Policy. 
And in fact, recently, what's striking is that I was present when uh, Vice President Kamala Harris spoke in Singapore. I was present when the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke in Singapore, and they both emphasized the One China policy. So what is amazing is that despite this steadfast commitment to this One China policy, Nancy Pelosi, who's from the Democrat Party and not from the Republican Party, is making a very provocative visit to Taiwan, which actually could lead to a very sharp reaction from China. And I can tell you that many of the countries in Asia are very troubled by this because we don't want to see provocative acts like this, which will disrupt the, the peace and stability of our region. And that's what the Asian Peace Program is about, to try and, you know, preserve peace and stability. I think the problem with these sorts of uh, moves... To me, they're virtue signaling moves. They don't gain the United States anything tangential, anything material. A visit does not benefit the U.S. It's very hard to argue that it benefits uh, the U.S. in any way. Uh, yet it provokes uh, China. So when you when you have a play where you, your benefit levels are low and the opponent, in this you know, putative opponent, China, uh, benefits or at least response can be can lead us where neither country wants to go, then it just doesn't make sense. Now the Biden team is clearly signaling to the speaker, who by the way has her own uh, autonomy in this decision. This is not something the White House can stop. Uh, it's a different branch of government. The Congress is uh, very proud of its independence in the U.S. system. And I think the Biden team has sent those signals. I think President Biden himself said the other day about something about the military not uh, supporting this trip. Because you have the, the party congress coming up in China and later in the year. There's, of course, an election in the U.S. I think the problem here is that the time-tested one-China policy, the time-tested strategic ambiguity approach of the U.S., where it doesn't commit to defending Taiwan in the case of an attack, nor does it say it will not uh, defend, has been beneficial in creating a zone where Taiwan could flourish economically, where cross-strait relations could mushroom when they didn't exist 30 years ago or so or 40 years ago, where everybody won. Everybody actually could claim a victory of sorts. Today, that one-China policy is being eroded. The gaffes that are referred to by President Biden, which are getting harder to explain as gaffes, to be honest. Are, even, even though they've each time the Biden administration made it a point to correct the gaffes. They have, but what but happens... But the gaffes remain. Yes, what happens is a standard issue correction that we still uphold the one-China policy. Uh, there needs to be a much... First of all, the gaffes should not continue, period. Secondly, there should be a very clear articulation in word and deed that the one China policy remains the bedrock of the United States. So visits of very high officials to Taiwan, other kinds of signaling that is ambiguous, ambiguous about ambiguity, if you will, doesn't lead to. I mean, I'm still trying to find the logic that says that the U.S. benefits. You know, I can't speak for Taiwan, but I, you know, I, I would. I would assume that it would raise the risk uh, across the straits. I mean, that's how I can tell you that's how most countries in Asia, uh, especially the ASEAN countries, uh, would view it. They would view it as a very provocative move. And frankly, this is where, in a sense, one, one contemporary issue that, of course, is related to Taiwan, at least symbolically or metaphorically, 
is what's happening in Ukraine. Many people in the United States say that if the United States doesn't stand up to Russia and Ukraine, this is going to open up the possibility of China invading Taiwan, you know, which I think is a completely uh, wrong analogy because, you know, Ukraine is an independent sovereign country that is recognized as one by the United Nations. And Taiwan is not an independent sovereign country that is recognized by the uh, United Nations as an independent state. So it's a very, very different situation. I'm going to sort of ask a question about the Ukraine war and how do you think that will play out? Because it's quite clear there is now a divergence in many ways between what the West is expecting in Ukraine. You, the West sees Ukraine as a black and white issue that, you know, is good versus evil. The, the West combined Europe and U.S. against Russia. But what's significant is that if you look at the list of the combined population of the countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia, it makes up only 15% of the world's population. 85% of the world's population has not imposed sanctions on Russia. And indeed, as you can see from the visit of Foreign Minister Lavrov to Africa that is going on as we speak, that a lot of African countries are still keeping their doors open to Russia, as, in, as indeed are many uh, Asian uh, countries too. So in that sense, how do you think the Ukraine war affects, in a sense, uh, Americans' views towards the rest of the world? How will it uh, uh, affect, for example, their views of Asia? I think the interesting thing here is uh, the seesawing of American perceptions of how the war is going. For example, in the beginning, American leaders felt that uh, Russia had made a big blunder, which, by the way, it was a violation of mm. Ukraine's territorial integrity. Absolutely. It was... Uh, it's illegal. The invasion's uh, illegal. Illegal uh, invasion. And I think the UN votes have reflected that, UNGA, uh, very clearly. So that that is without debate. But... I think there was a sense that in terms of the military aspects, that this war is going very badly for Russia in terms of the way it stumbled in the first weeks. Could not capture Kiev. It suffered many losses. The Ukrainians put up a very brave, uh, mm. courageous resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. This was uh, uh, certainly seen as, as a way perhaps this invasion can be reversed. What's happening now is something more gray where the Russians have given up on their, uh, it seems, although I read very recently that there was some mixed signaling from Sergei Lavrov, but generally it seems that Russia is focusing on the East. And th the other problem is that one impact of this war is significantly higher inflation. And this inflation is being exported back to the West. So the longer this war goes on, the more is the pain felt, not just by Russians, Ukrainians, of course, the, the most, but also by Americans. And uh, the average American doesn't have a lot of savings. The upper middle class does well, but your very average American lives by from paycheck to paycheck often. So this inflation is bad for the people in the United States. And so a prolonged conflict is not in the interests of the U.S., uh, never mind uh, Ukraine and Europe. And this is where the question arises that coupled with the fact that any conflict, whether it, God forbid, happens in Taiwan 
would have an even greater impact on inflation because China, as we know, and Taiwan indeed, are deeply woven much more into the global supply chains. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so can yeah. the U.S. You, could, you, could, you can't buy an Apple phone if there no, if there's no trade within U.S. and China. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so... Indeed, the U.S. and Chinese economies are complementary. You know, if you look at the, the terms of trade, yeah. it's a mutually beneficial dynamic for the most part with some, you know, with some significant issues. So I would say that the Ukraine war very, tra- very tragically should lead to some learnings if there's a silver lining in this. One is that the rest of the world, as you pointed out very well, the rest of the world, the global south, is not interested in taking sides. Mm. Including good friends like India, for example. Absolutely. On mm. Russia, the, mm. India has taken a very different uh, position. Mm. While while uh, uh, not being thrilled about the violations of territorial integrity that have happened, uh, the United States has a system of alliances and partnerships, but this is not like the Cold War. In the Cold War, ally- allies and partners typically fell in line to their patrons. Mm-hmm. Even there, by the way, there were divergences. For example, yeah. Ostpolitik was an initiative that opened the way for detente. But today it's much more true. Today allies from Turkey to Thailand are close friends of the U.S. They have no problem with the United States. In the case of Thailand, it's a very active partner. But it does not mean they're going to sign on to every sanction and every policy that the U.S. pursues. And so... This should be a message, not just to Russia, but to the United States as well, in terms of what a future crisis over Taiwan could mean and why it is so important to avoid, avoid that crisis, avoid the conditions that can create such a crisis. Yeah, absolutely right. And yeah, can maybe I can just inject a question on Europe. In many ways, on the Ukraine issue, uh, Europe could have played the role of a bridge builder to try and, in a sense, explain to people in Washington, D.C., is not the best thing in the world to try and humiliate Russia, which is, by the way, what George Cannon advised, which is what Henry Kissinger advised. And Henry Kissinger himself had a, a very good formula in 2014 on how to preserve peace in uh, Ukraine. He says, you know, Ukraine should be completely independent, free to join the European Union, but Ukraine shouldn't join NATO. And even a simple assurance like saying Ukraine should not join NATO would have solved half the problem. But that was an assurance that the United States was, for whatever reason, uh, reluctant to give. And I would say in many ways, the Europeans could have been peacemakers on the Ukraine issue, but they have actually failed. How do you assess the the European uh, record on this subject? Well, Europe has largely, uh, Europe and U.S. policies on Russia have largely been aligned practically entirely. Well, there are exceptions, of course, like Hungary and, and a couple of others. I don't know if this can be sustained in the case of this particular question. We are not talking now of, Allies like Turkey, who were never with the U.S. on uh, it, Turkey is a NATO ally, by the way. People forget these days. The fact that people forget itself tells you something. But I suspect that if this war goes on, not for weeks or a few months longer, but a year or more, then 
there will be European leaders who will start doing the maths and may start looking for a diplomatic settlement out of it. What the terms should be, of course, can only be decided by most importantly Ukrainians. But nevertheless, the prioritization of diplomacy as a path rather than saying, let this continue till Russia is defeated, which it is unlikely to be defeated. And if it is, by the way, the, 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 the implications may not be so pretty for security in, in Europe. If let's say Russia is defeated in terms of a regime change or something of that sort. So the lessons for Asia are that I think Asian allies may find it productive to have these quiet conversations with Washington before a crisis occurs, God forbid, and try to be bridges. For example, South Korea has a a staunch U.S. ally, a close friend of the United States, uh, regardless of administration there, uh, but has a nuanced view on China. Hmm. And, um, and has uh, been invited to join the Quad. Has been, and, has been, which would make if South Korea joins the Quad, you got to call it the Squad, right? <laughs> but, Maybe uh, for that reason but so alone. Far, but so right. far, South Korea yeah. has, uh, for whatever reason, decided not to join the Quad. I mean, they may do so eventually, but they, so far, they're holding back for, for the obvious reason that uh, South Korea needs China's cooperation on North Korea. To put it very simply. It does. It does. And I think the, the, the issue is what are disputes that you can you can take on with China? Because there are disputes between the U.S. and China that are real, that are substantive. There are certain trade practices that China prosecutes. These flybys near Taiwan are not positive. The intrusions in the South China Sea with ASEAN states are not constructive. But nevertheless, what are the issues that the U.S. should see as red zones. Every nation has their, uh, let's say, concentric circles of interests. Certain interests are at the heart of uh, a nation. For example, territorial claims, especially if they have some historical basis. I mean, it's a fact that Taiwan many, many, many years ago was a part of China, no matter how you, how yes. you conceive of China. It That's undeniable. Yeah. Very hard to, to, to say it wasn't. Of course, that doesn't mean that the Chinese position is 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 correct or, or or anything like that. But the point is, this is a core sensitive issue for the Chinese people in a way that is different from, let's say, unfair trade practices as an issue. Unfair trade practices can be negotiated. From the Chinese standpoint, the status of Taiwan cannot be. From the U.S. standpoint, Taiwan is a very distant island that is an interest. But the question is how vital an interest it is. Is it vital to the point where you, you can flirt war, with war or conflict yeah. over it? I mean, if this were happening in Hawaii, of course it would be. If the Chinese for, or any power were, were intruding in Hawaii, for example, or Guam, uh, the U.S. would feel extremely threatened. Taiwan is not the same. But nevertheless, from the Chinese perspective, uh, which is, by the way, shared by many Chinese citizens. This is not just the Communist Party of China. It is sensitive. So not to accept the Chinese version of history, but to understand that this issue can easily escalate. That's right. Yeah. I mean, every country, you're right, has got red lines. For example, when it comes to India, you better be careful before you say anything on Kashmir. Indeed. Because Kashmir is of such a vital national interest to India and I know uh, how sensitive it was when Singapore was a member of the UN Security Council. Ireland <laughs> tried to bring it up 
I think Ireland got his head bashed. <laughs> it's very <laughs> which is, sensitive. Which is fully what I expected completely, yeah. But I want to end, you know, it's amazing, time flies. We've already completed 45 minutes of our wonderful discussion. Frankly, the best contribution that this discussion has made is actually to bring out the the complexity of all these issues, which doesn't come through in the black and white reporting that you get in the Anglo-Saxon media uh, on many of these issues. This is why I hope the Asian peace talks are making a contribution. But I want to end on an optimistic note, because I do think that there are still many areas in which the U.S. and China uh, could be collaborating with one another, where actually it would serve their larger interests, as well as the larger interests of humanity as a whole, for the United States and China to actually collaborate in some areas. And I know that you've been writing about this, uh, Sarang, in the past. Do you want to share with our audience how you think we can persuade the United States and China, even while they continue to compete, to maybe perhaps spend as much time cooperating in areas where there is their mutual interest to do so? So what would you give as advice for the areas of cooperation? We have talked a lot about geopolitics, but there are, of course, dynamics happening on the planet that are of grave concern and indeed are great threats. The most important one is climate change. Along with that is pandemics, and we have experienced the pandemics in the last two years. These are areas where nationalism and I would even say national identity reaches its limits because these Phenomena are so thoroughly planetary in nature, so completely suffuse national borders and are so urgent and grave that their solution can only come from cooperation. Competition, while yes, certain technologies benefit from market competition, that's always welcomed. But in a policy, governmental policy sense, there has to be cooperation. So I would put the first item as these planetary systemic threats. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this also includes things like global financial stability. Mm, of course, uh, when, yes. when the Fed does something or the Chinese central bank does something else, whether it's crypto, whether it's interest rates, what have you, there's, there is there are conversations on these that happen. But these are areas that need to be more front and central in cooperation. On climate change, particularly in Asia, It is one of the most threatened continents on climate change. When you look at South Asia, when you look at the Mekong Delta, when you look at Myanmar, when you look at the Philippines, if you spin the current natural disasters out by 10, 15, 20 years, we are dealing with substantial economic impacts Mm -hmm. uh, on on supply chains, on manufacturing. And there is all the reason... For the United States, with the sort of capacities it has in the region of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and indeed Chinese capacities that have become much more stronger now, to proactively say, not just make a statement that we will cooperate when necessary and then sort of forget it, but actually put meat on the bones, to actually say, let us have a summit focused on climate cooperation. Let us not just talk about mitigation uh, in terms of telling China to not use coal, 
but actually revive our technological cooperation. For example, the energy cooperation that U.S. and China had, they had a center set up that's gone sort of moribund. Innovate in things like carbon capture, removing carbon from the air, hydrogen. There are many technologies that we know are doable, but whether they come into the market 20 years from now or seven years from now makes all the difference on controlling mitigation. This is where the best scientists and technologists from two countries and indeed others should collaborate to bring solutions to bear to the global market and let there be a self-interest component to it, of course, uh, as well. So I see climate change not just as something to avoid bad things, but also to innovate new products, new markets, to give hope for the young, for both countries, to create new careers. And indeed, improve our quality of life. I mean, if you have more biking lanes, you have better, uh, less toxic products. Uh, There's a range of spin-offs from tackling climate change. And the U.S. and China are the two world's biggest uh, polluters. So if they don't come together, who else is going to do it? Absolutely. And and I'm I'm glad that you emphasize that in in many key areas, the United States and China actually have common interests, especially in terms of dealing uh, with the common uh, planetary challenges. I must say, I want to thank you very much, Sarang. This has been an excellent discussion. I think one, one thing we realized in the Asian Peace Program is that achieving peace is actually a very difficult and complex exercise. And in our discussion, I think, has in many ways brought out all the difficulties and complexities. Uh, of the issues that we have to deal with. And by so doing, I think we are making a major contribution. And for that, I thank you very much for coming all the way from Washington, D.C. to Singapore to participate in this discussion of the Asian Peace Program. I also want to conclude by thanking my friends and colleagues, uh, the supporters of the Asian Peace Programs, and of course, the very strong, dedicated team that I have. And I want to especially mention uh, Dr. Varigonda Kesavachandra, Bertrand Sia and Kristen Tang for their contributions towards um, creating this podcast series of the Asian Peace Program. Thank you very much, Sarang. Thank you, Kishore. And uh, I really appreciate all the work the Asian Peace Program is doing. And I wish it and you and your team all the best. Thank you.